Obesity is the U.S. problem too big for most physicians to tackle. You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, your host, and with me today is Dr. Sandra Carson, a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Brown University Medical School and the Director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Women and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island. Today, we are joined by Dr. Carson to discuss the treatment of obesity and how to make it happen in a busy practice. Welcome, Dr. Carson. Thank you. Now, it seems that every week there's a a new diet and, of course, the obligatory best-selling book and celebrity expert to go with it. I always tell patients that they shouldn't go on a diet. They just need to change the way they eat. But having said that, are there any pop diets out there that you recommend? I just tell patients they need to eat less and, if they can, exercise more. Most of these fad diets are all about the same, and they're all ways to get patients to eat less and get patients to be aware of what they're eating. The only exception to that might be the Adkins diet, and probably also only for men. And the reason for that is the Adkins diet has such a low carbohydrate content that insulin, it becomes almost undetectable in two days. Mm -hmm. However, I don't believe it's truly a very healthy diet because the brain only metabolizes glucose and without insulin, the brain can't get glucose. So for extended periods of time, it's probably not a good idea. So what's a reasonable amount of time for someone to stay on Atkins? I'm not sure, but I would think that six months is probably way too About long. But I don't know that we have the, uh, the, no, the, the data. data to really say that, and that's really my opinion. And it also might be a calorie diet, especially in women. That is just a way to get women to eat less. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's not. It's just that I think there might be something else going on with that diet. But the point is, is that you cannot gain weight without eating. It just doesn't happen. Right. Can you review the most commonly prescribed pharmacologic anorectic agents and when it's appropriate to use each of them? And let's start with the neurotransmitter reuptake inhibitors, if we could. Well, I think cybutramine is probably the most commonly prescribed anorectic agent. And it is um, given to help patients control their appetite in a way that is that makes them eat but then be satisfied and it also helps sort of prevent that craving for more food it uh, works by inhibiting the central nervous system's desire to eat more. It's related to a lot of the antidepressants, such as fluoxetine, Mm -hmm. and works in a similar way by preventing the serotonin reuptake. Now, my understanding is that cybutramine can cause elevated high blood pressure, and since many obese patients are already hypertensive, does that limit its use? One of the side effects of cybutramine is uh, a fast heart rate and high blood pressure, and it should be given very carefully in patients who have high blood pressure. But you would give it if someone has well-controlled high blood pressure? I would give it and work with patients internists when they are on other drugs. 
And also, it's important to note that these drugs can also increase liver enzymes. Mm -hmm. So if a patient has a history of liver disease, they cannot be used. And once someone reaches their goal weight on cybutramine, do you continue it for maintenance or then you then discontinue the drug? I will continue it for a short time on maintenance and stop it for a while and then restart it if need be for up to one year. And how well does it work? Of course, everything works differently for each patient. If a patient loses four to six pounds in the first three weeks of taking cybutramine, then she's got about a 60 to 80% chance of going on to be successful in dieting. But if she's not successful in those first three weeks, it's unlikely that she will be able to successfully lose any more weight. Let's move on to the noradrenergic stimulants. Do you think they're useful? In some patients, some of the noradrenergic stimulants are helpful. Um, Adapex, which is a brand name, it is uh, useful in um, helping patients, again, control their appetite it's, there's some question as to whether it increases the metabolic rate or not, but it probably is not given in high enough doses to actually work through that mechanism. And therefore, the true mechanism of the drug is, again, appetite control. Mm -hmm. The problem with Adipex is it does cause a fast heart rate, it does cause high blood pressure, and it is not recommended for use in the hypertensive patient. Now, what about the central nervous system stimulants? And we all remember the fen-fen craze. Is there ever a time when you use those drugs? I personally don't use the central nervous system stimulants because I think they have an increased risk of addiction and you might be replacing one problem with another. So I think that we have enough in our armamentarium to stop at that point. But this all comes up with the basic premise of weight loss that's so important, and that is the motivation of the patient. The patient has got to want to lose weight. Now, that doesn't make it easy, and I think another important program for all of these is a support group. Mm -hmm. I will say that I have had the most success for, with Weight Watchers. I have no conflict, no ties to Weight Watchers whatsoever, but I think if a patient can get involved in that group and consistently go and use it, it's the most successful program that I personally have found. Let's talk about exercise. You know, one of the things that we hear our patients say all the time is that it just increases their appetite and increases muscle mass. And in fact, I had a patient who saw me last week who said that her 50-pound weight gain was due to her improved muscle mass from her rigorous exercise program. So how important is exercise, number one? And number two, how much weight gain is acceptable due to increased muscle mass that comes from exercise? I think the most useful uh, thing about exercise for women is that it's an excuse. Exercise is a very inefficient way for women to lose weight. And the reason is, is that we have so much more body fat than do men, and men have so much more muscle than we do, that exercise will increase the uh, expenditure in muscle tissue, but not in the fat tissue. So men who have more muscle will exercise and lose weight. Women and equal doing an equal amount of exercise in general don't lose as much weight. If you walk for 30 minutes 
at three miles an hour, you lose 100 calories. Which is that, pretty much nothing. Right. That's one piece, a little over one piece of bread. Yeah. So exercise is, is extremely inefficient. It does make... Uh, so do it for your heart. But, but not necessarily to take off the pounds. There is a whole lot of reasons to exercise. You tend to feel better. You, um, it is, you can't it has, eat while you exercise. That's another reason. <laughs> there you go. That's what I find. Yeah. You ha- it has cardiovascular benefits. But in terms of weight loss, it can make patients hungry. It hurts. It's often boring. And then they injure themselves and stop exercising. Injure themselves and then say, oh, well, I hurt my foot and I can't exercise and that's why I lost weight. Well, it's not. It's your eating that makes you gain weight and not lose weight. The exercise for weight loss is not good. Yeah. Now, ideally, obesity should be prevented, not treated. And fat children frequently become fat adults. So certainly the pediatricians play an important role in recognizing the at-risk child. But what about adults? When is a normal weight woman most likely to begin that slippery slope towards obesity? And when and how can we intervene? I think that there are some times when women are high, at highest risk for weight gain. Of course, during pregnancy... Also, there might be some evidence that after a woman gets married, there might be an increase of weight gain. It may be, however, related to uh, pregnancy, so the data is a little unclear of that. And then through the menopausal transition, there's an average weight gain of about 10 pounds. So these are the times in life when women have to be particularly aware that they are at risk for gaining weight. So... What that means most likely is that someone who's had three or four pregnancies is more likely to be obese at 50 than if they never conceived at all. Is there any data that that shows that? The problem with uh, multiple pregnancies associated with uh, weight in later life is the the fact that many times patients will gain weight during a pregnancy and then fail to lose it. So it's not the multiple pregnancy per se, but rather the cumulative weight gain during multiple pregnancies with the intervening failure to lose it. Probably if women lose that weight after each pregnancy, the number of pregnancies per se doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and finally, in our managed care-driven high-volume offices, how do we on a practical level work in counseling, management time, that you really need to properly address this issue? I mean, this is preventative. There's essentially no compensation, and it's almost understandable why a lot of otherwise well-meaning physicians just don't take the time needed to address the issue. So if you could shed any light on how to make it actually happen in our offices, it would be very helpful. I think that the major problem, rather than time available to counsel patients, is the fact that we have, as physicians, have sort of become reluctant to talk about it. Patients don't want to hear it. Everybody knows in the obese patient including the patient themselves, that they need to lose weight. And they are sometimes reluctant to go to the doctor 
because they don't want to hear that. And they don't want to get weighed. I hear that every day. I didn't, I didn't come because I didn't want to get weighed. Right. And, and then I think we as physicians don't want to hurt our patients' feelings, but yet we're not doing them a service. And we're also afraid that if we say something, they won't come back for the other important things, such as measurement of blood pressure and pelvic exam. And so, therefore, by reminding them that they need to lose weight, we're not giving them the other health care that they need. And I'm not sure how we're going to get out of this dilemma. And, of course, what you're doing uh, in making everyone, physicians and patients, aware that this is a problem um, is probably the best way to go. And only with coupling with patients, physician and patient coupling, are we really going to solve this nationwide problem? Well, as physicians, we are very aware that obesity is a life-threatening condition, and sometimes the problem does seem too big to tackle. But I would like to thank Dr. Sandra Carson, who shared her recommendations to treat obesity so that we can make a significant impact on rates of hypertension, diabetes, and cancer. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. You've been listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.